Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey guys, welcome to And The Writer Is. I'm your host, Ross Golan. I've written with hundreds of artists and writers over the years, and my favorite part of each session is the first hour when we catch up about life, the industry, politics, composition, whatever. So this is a journey of learning why people write songs, how people write songs, and most importantly, who the people are who write the songs. I'm producing this with The Great Joe London, Big Deal Music Publishing, and Mega House Music Management. If you want to listen to the songs we discuss in this podcast, follow us on our socials, find out about special live events, or buy that merch, aka that hat I always wear, go to our website, www.andthewriteris.com. For a little bit of context, we just wanted you to know that a lot of these were recorded before quarantine. And as we know, a lot has changed in 2020. So again, please stay safe out there. And enjoy the new episodes of And the Writer Is. Welcome to And the Writer Is. I am your host, Ross Golan. Today's legend is one of the most iconic guitarists and best selling artists of all time. This Grammy winner is part of the elite era of rock and roll. His career spanning 20 solo albums included one that stayed at the top of the Billboard 200 for 10 weeks and stayed on the chart for 97 total. His discography helped define the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And after a smash cover of Baby I Love Your Way in the 90s and a Grammy in the aughts, he's now, as of this week, adding a page-turning memoir to his illustrious resume. In his book, aptly named Do You Feel Like I Do?, he shares some of the most riveting stories of success and heartache in the music industry that I've ever read. All the way from Kent, England, this savant-turned-rock star can make his guitar speak literally. And the writer is the one and only Peter Frampton. <laughs> Hello! Hi. <laughs> this is awesome, man. Welcome. Well, nice, nice to be with you today. So, yeah, so, you know, we, uh, I, I always want to know how people actually figured out they wanted to be a songwriter. And I know a lot of this uh, with someone like your career, it's a lot of it's uh, written down in, in many different places. But just from your mouth, you know, tell me about, uh, tell me about, you know, you were born. You happen to be born in this, like, in an era and in a country and in a time where people, Seem to really like guitar players. So, you know, uh, tell me a little bit about it. What, what was it like being, you know, growing up in Kent, England? Well, um, I, I was born, it's going to be a long interview. I was born, um, you know, five years after, well, four years after the Pacific War ended, but five years after the European War ended. So I think my parents and a lot of parents at that time 
were just thrilled to have made it through. A lot didn't, obviously. And so when the baby boom started, when they they got home from war, I think at that point, a lot of parents sort of forgot their upbringing because they'd just been through hell. <laughs> and they uh, and some had got through it, a lot didn't. And uh, so I think it any vestige of... of Victorian lifestyle that my parents grew up in uh, completely disappeared straight away. And it was a completely uh, different, um, I think the values of what was proper and what wasn't changed at that point. And uh, obviously there was a big reason for this. And when um, when uh, children of the, uh, the baby boomer children, uh, when they showed any signs of creativity. Um, I think it was championed and it was a more open society at that point. There wasn't um, people saying, well, actors, that's a terrible career or, you know, uh, or musician, you don't want to be a music. You know, now it was, we had Elvis, uh, 1955, um, Elvis comes through and all these great um, uh, American uh, artists like um, uh, Buddy Holly, Eddie Cochran, people like that were coming over to see us. Um, and, well, not Elvis, but coming over to see us in Europe. And we got the bug really early. And so for me, by the time I was uh, eight, um, I wanted a guitar. And I just didn't want an acoustic guitar. Not the one on your, by your left shoulder. I wanted the one on by your right shoulder. <laughs> no, I wanted the one right behind you, the Strat. That one. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yes. <laughs> what what kind of music did your parents listen to? What, what What's interesting about that era is that there really is this, um, you know, jazz ha- is really in its heyday, and then you have this new kind of sound. Um, I imagine that there's still some sort of generational gap or were your parents more, uh, were they more excited about new music coming from the U.S. or were they more traditionalists? Well, they started off being traditionalists, more like my father did. My mother's always been, was always very open to new music and new stuff and and uh, she was very, very into that. And uh, But I, I think that it was... Um, uh, their music was big band music, American big band music. My mother was in the audience um, uh, waiting for Glenn Miller to arrive um, in Paris when his plane crashed that day. Wow. And Glenn Miller, the huge band leader, when he, he went into the ocean, unfortunately, and his band were already on the stage. So, I mean, that was the era. <laughs> and... Um, uh, so, but my my parents' favorite music together was the Hot Club de France, which was Django Reinhardt, Stefan Grappelli, Django's brother, and a piano player and a bass player, basically, you know. And uh, I hated it. It sounded like, as my kids would call it when they first started hearing me play, it was, Dad's listening to that old movie music again. So, um <laughs> I bet when so, I bet when uh, um, uh, Midnight in Paris came out, they were like, "Oh wow, this is this is Dad's music." Because that was a good <laughs> moment where we actually got to hear some. You know, there have been a few a few times where Django's. Obviously, I know there are a bunch of biopics about him and whatnot, but yes, 
That's really interesting. Did you um, did you emulate? You know, were you trying to? Uh, once you got a guitar, were you trying to emulate any specific guitarists? Were you trying? Yes. Were you forced to emulate those? No, you know, gypsy jazz guitarists, or were you on? You know, in in your bedroom, just doing the. <laughs> I was in my bedroom or in the living room with the record player. Uh, I was trying to emulate Hank Marvin from The Shadows, our instrumental band that backed up Cliff Richard. And, um, uh, but I, I would play my Shadows album. Uh, this was probably when 62, maybe 61, 62. And um, I was 11, 12, and I would play that. I would leave the room and dad would say, are you done? And then he would put on the Django Reinhardt Hot Club de France. And I couldn't get up the stairs quick enough. This was just awful stuff to me. It sounded like old, horrible music. So anyway, and then about the third time I was running up the stairs, I stopped halfway and I heard this incredible guitar run that Django did. And I went, wait a second. This guy's pretty good. So it just wasn't electric. That's what it was. I think I wanted I wanted an electric plug-in, gadgets, amp, you know, wires. I wanted to be like the shadows, you know. And uh, so then I would stay in the room. Um, so it became a two-album deal. <laughs> it became I would play the shadows, Dab would play Django, and we'd both enjoy each, you know. So that's that's... That was my musical basis and big band American music and blues, of course. Do you remember the run that Django did? Um, well, there's quite a few of them. <laughs> uh, I, I know that um, Minor Swing uh, is a, an, a very early track, which he did many times. There's, I mean, it just, there's runs all over the place. Um, Would you put over his records? I mean, is that how, I mean, or not his, but, you know, you were saying the Shadows... Is, are you learning their exact solos, yes. you know, lick for lick, or are you actually starting to create your own melodies as you go? Well, I would, I would copy Hank Marvin. I couldn't copy Django yet. My, I wasn't quite that adept. Uh, <laughs> and may, maybe one day. <laughs> but um, no, so I would... I would copy Hank's playing to a, the T. You know, I didn't have a Strat. I had a Hofner Club 60, um, which was a great guitar, but it wasn't a Fender. And um, I, I don't live in New York, but you can probably hear there's a siren going by. I, I probably want to stop for a second. It's like just loud enough. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> my my wife always makes fun of me because I'll I'll hear anything if we're you know five rooms away. It's like ah, the frequency of the refrigerator is driving. <laughs> whenever the, you're like me, you're like me. Uh, but anyway, where were we? Well, you, uh, you were saying how you. Oh yes, yeah, so I remember. I remember. Well, you so, uh, Fender, you weren't in New York. Oh no, that the New York was. <laughs> 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 but I guess no. you'd argue the instrumentation too. But go go for it. Yeah, so so I would learn Hank Marvin licks, uh, the the whole the whole album, all the singles, the B sides, everything, note for note. But then very early on, I would start writing my own instrumentals, like the Shadows or like the American Ventures, which some people might now draw 
uh, a connection there. But um, yes, so I started writing songs very early and I got a reel-to-reel tape recorder. I, I mean, the quality was disgusting, but it was something. And I, I would put down the rhythm part and then I would be able to play over the top the lead part, you know, so. And then I got two tape machines when I was, I'm still only about 12 or 13, and, and realized that I could go sound on sound. So I could go record the rhythm on one tape machine, put the microphone of the second machine in between the speaker of the first one and my guitar, and now I can pick up the rhythm here and me playing the lead, you know, so it was... It was very basic overdubbing at that age. But who's, who's even bringing that? I mean, somebody along the way says, well, you can go buy a tape recorder or can show you that. Or was it just something that you intuitively knew, I need to record this guitar playing? I knew a lot of kids that could really play guitar, but never understood that you could record the guitar. Those are different things. That's... Yes, this, this is the techie side of me that, that came through because um, I think I was maybe at school. Um, I had seen a teacher play something back from a, a tape recorder. And um, a Grundig, I think, was the one they used to use. And, um, and I thought, and then she would uh, take people talking and stuff like that. I thought, wow. I could record my guitar. I've got to get one. So that's when I got a second-hand tape recorder. It, it, and then I got the second one and went uh, sound on sound. And then I needed echo, so I wired the bathroom as an echo chamber, which was very discouraging for those who needed to use the bathroom in the house. You know? I think your, and, parents, your parents must have thought this was either brilliant or just... A nuisance, but yes, I, yeah, they they didn't <laughs> they didn't quite understand what the hell I was doing. But then when I played them the result, I I would send my guitar sound through a little amplifier. I don't know how I did this in those days, but I did. I sent it through to a little speaker that I took off the the kitchen wall that my dad used for an extension for the radio, and I took that upstairs <laughs> and I put that in the bath. And then on the, on the windowsill of the bathroom, I put the microphone for the tape, uh, tape recorder. And then it would come back into the, tape, into the tape machine and I would play, my guitar sound would go through the bathroom, picked up on the other microphone, come back. And I actually had a echo return level on the second machine. Amazing. I, I, that's me. I'm just this. I've, so I can say I was a recording engineer in preparation anyway, when I was about, you know, 10 or 11, 12 years old. What, what inspired you to sing at all? Like to be in a, as a writer, you're writing, you know, there's one thing where you're getting inspired by the technological side, the guitar playing side. But there's a voice somewhere that's saying that you need to actually write songs. You know, those are different. Yes. Well, I think I, the first, um, after I got the guitar going, um, I then said, well, I, I should learn to play the piano. So my parents bought me this old, heavy upright, which I remember it took like four 
four beefy men to bring it up the stairs to my bedroom. And I was worried it was going to go through the ceiling in the, in the kitchen. So, but, um, so I, um, I taught myself piano and, and I'm a very basic, you know, octave in the left hand and chords and a few notes in the right. Not a, not a piano player, but I know enough to write songs. And, um, and I learnt, the way I learned to play the piano was finding chords and while I was doing that, I was singing a melody over the top of it. So I started singing, you know. And uh, I never wanted to be the lead singer in a band. I just wanted to be the guy that does the ooh, shooby doo you right. know, in the background <laughs> and, and play lead guitar, you know. But, you know, you can sing. You sing my song here. I'm written here on, on piano. So, um, and when I joined The Herd... Um, I was the, the guitar player, shooby-doo uh, singer, and n- not much else. I think I maybe sang one song a night. The other singers in the band uh, were the lead singers. Who's convincing you that it's time to go and do, you know, I know that we've limited time, so we'll jump forward. You know, we're, yeah, yeah. we're now in the mid-60s, late 60s, and somebody's saying you should go and do it's time for you to do your own music uh, on your own and it feels like that's an era where where a lot of bands were you know there there was sort of a mix there were bands and then there were real guitarists but that's a big leap to go and pursue that why go and do a solo album when you when you don't when you can be this shooby doo guy why would you put yourself in front of all those people? Um, because I, I realized uh, that I needed to be in control of my own destiny. And at this point, I decided that I would do... Um, I decided to leave Humble Pie um, just before their biggest album came out, which I was on uh, at that point, um, Rock in the Film or the live album. And... Um, I thought it was a better time to leave before it came out because we all knew it would be relatively successful, um, but not as big as it was. And um, so, of course, I thought I'd made the biggest mistake of my life, but I was determined that it's time for me now. I'm coming into my own. I want to lead my own situation. Um, uh, And it was an easy decision for me to make but I was sad about it because, you know, of the guys in Humble Pie. But I, I did decide to leave and make my own, at least for this first album, I was going to do all the singing. I didn't plan on doing it for the rest of my career. But, um, you know, do what you do and things will happen. So in the end, I ended up singing everything, you know. So uh, I, I'm not the world's greatest singer by any means. Um, what I have... I, I can deal with pretty well. I use it to its fullest ability, my fullest ability. But um, guitar playing still my my forte and or my my biggest love. I do I really enjoy singing. But like I say, you know, if if Paul Rogers is around, I'd much prefer he be singing. Mm. <laughs> I I always think that what's interesting in a story is what happens between the hits and when you get when you leave a band to pursue being a soloist and then they have their biggest hit but you haven't released yet Wind of Change. Right. 
did you ever call them and say, can I come back? <laughs> or were you so sure that it was, or were they like, this is done? I mean, that's a... Uh, it's interesting question. It's, it's something about um, my resilience in as much as I make huge decisions really easy, really easily. Um, and the small things uh, in life that really are annoying really annoy me. Uh, and my kids say that, Dad, calm down. You know, it doesn't matter that you moved the magazine from that side. I know it's supposed, you think it's supposed to be in the middle or that part is in the wrong place. You shouldn't move that. That's, you know, those little, I'll go crazy about that. And I'm trying to think of other little stupid things. But when it comes to leaving a band or, um, uh, you know, becoming an American citizen, um, two huge things for me. Um, both of those were. Um, and it, it becomes very easy for me because I, I've made my mind up. It's one of those things. Between Wind of Change, which is obviously a successful album, going into Frampton Comes Alive, there's four years of probably touring and, and dealing with the success of that album. Mm -hmm. um, this is... The 70s is an era where it feels like there aren't that many... There aren't many times in the 80s and 90s that I can think of where... Uh, where live albums and the live show is so intertwined with the success of an artist. Mm -hmm. When you release Frampton Comes Alive, was that supposed to be for your fans? Or was that, was the assumption that this was going to up, you know, there's being successful and then there's that album, you know, mm -hmm. when you released that, was the goal for that album to supersede what you had done previously? Or was it to sort of just be a live album that you did? You know, there's a difference in expectations. Yes. It really wasn't any of that. It was, um, <clears throat> I had left Humble Pie, having been a big part of mixing um, with Eddie Kramer, the, uh, the a Rock in the Fillmore Humble Pie gold album. Um, and um, so, uh, and Humble Pie had had four albums before that, which did relatively little sales, in sales. And... We just felt at that particular time, Humble Pie's studio album before that, it's my, the favourite one, studio one that I'm on, called Rock On. Um, uh, our audience was really building and we felt that um, from that album we should definitely give them the live stage act because that's what people were coming to see. Uh, that's what they liked about Humble Pie. So it was pretty much a foregone conclusion when my fourth solo album, Frampton, was sort of on a par. I felt it was my best studio album like I felt that Rock On was. I'd reached a, a, a level where I felt I was writing really well and the band was sounding great and the album was very well received in comparison to all the others beforehand um, and had sold 
a good amount, more than the others put together, 300,000 before Frampton Comes Alive came out. So we knew if we just followed... Or I don't think anybody actually said the word, let's do a live album. We just all went, uh-huh. You know, it was the, the uh, assumption that if we follow the same game plan as Humble Pie, maybe this one will be a gold album. Uh, when you do this live recording, and I don't, I, I imagine a lot of the people who listen to this have heard it, but you, in the, one of the things that you became famous for during that was this ability to do the voice box live. Mm-hmm. And explain why you started doing that. It's a unique sound. It's a unique instrument. What was it that, it, it, to me, it looks like you were just having fun and we're just mm-hmm. in an era of, yeah, let's just, this is a cool way to make a guitar work. You know, I mean, I don't, I don't really understand how it works. I just have seen videos mm-hmm. of you doing it. Mm-hmm. So can you explain what a voice box is and why you feel the need to be still innovating your instrument? Um, it goes way back to when I would listen to a radio show from Luxembourg called Radio Luxembourg um, in Europe. Um, uh, it, from 7, to, 7 p.m. till 11 p.m., at least weeknights, I think, they played... We had the BBC radio, which was awful. Uh, you hardly ever heard any good music at all, especially no blues, no rock, no, you know, American music. So, um, but Radio Luxembourg would have, uh, I think he was a Canadian DJ, would, would uh, play all American music, and we couldn't get enough of it. Well, their call sign was 208, um, fabulous 208, that's what it was because uh, there was a magazine they put out as well called Fabulous 208. So, but they would do the call sign, as a lot of American stations used to use, this special gadget that you put on your throat, and it made it sound um, like a computer voice, and it was Fabulous that sort of talk boxy sound, you know. And when the first time I heard that, I, I went berserk. I thought, oh, my God. God, what is that? How do they do that? Well, let's fast forward to I'm in the studio with George Harrison and we're doing the All Things Must Pass album. And um, we're laying down, I'm there for about a week, laying down the acoustics with George and Badfinger, the three members of Badfinger, me and George, all sitting in a line. And... uh, and George says, well, t- uh, tomorrow I've got Pete Drake coming in from uh, Nashville and uh, uh, he's a great pedal steel player. Bob Dylan told me about him. So anyway, Pete Drake was one of the A-team. He was like, you name it, country song in the 60s, he's on it. It's phenomenal player. So I get to meet Pete Drake. He sets up his pedal steel the following day. Like, my feet can touch, I'm so close, my feet can touch the legs of the pedal steel. (laughs) And he says, in a slow moment, he just says to me, Peter, would you like to hear something different? I said, oh, yeah, yeah. So they're changing reels or something. And and, um, so he gets out this little box, puts it on the edge of his uh, pedal steel, two-neck pedal steel, double-neck. And then 
he starts plugging stuff in here, plugging stuff in there. Then he puts, it gets a plastic tube out of somewhere. It's like that Bob Dylan thing. Then you stick it in your mouth and you smoke it. You know, it's like, <laughs> uh, so, he, and he puts this, this, this plastic pipe on the box and then the other end of it goes in his mouth and he says, listen, and he starts playing the pedal steel and it starts singing to me out of his mouth with that sound. And I think every hair on my body stood, I stood up uh, and screamed, <laughs> there it is, there it is, you know. And then George um, heard what was going on. And there's actually, that moment is on YouTube, audio. The audio of that moment, I couldn't believe it. But it's George laughing, George talking and me laughing when Pete does this first thing. Oh man, legendary. When, when Frampton Comes Alive comes out, you have just, a, it's just sort of this nonstop hit after hit moment. Not to mention that the album is just ubiquitous and becomes part of the conversation for how rock and roll, certainly how live albums should be recorded. Um, do you start thinking it's easy to write hit songs? Is, is it, do you start having, you know, when you have one hit and then you have a follow-up and another one and your album's constantly on the charts, you know, one of the things in your book that's really interesting is you talk about drug use and your relationship with your manager and whatnot. And I imagine that, I, I mean, just, I, I imagine that this whole era is confusing. Mm-hmm. Just describe what it's like to have the album of, you know, nominated album of the year, you know, all these singles. Are you starting to think this is just normal? Is um, it, humans aren't supposed to, aren't supposed to know what it feels like. It, it did, I did start to get used to that fact, but also at the same time, it's not, doesn't give me a feeling of well-being because... I have now released the album that was, in 76, the biggest album ever, uh, biggest selling album in America ever. And um, it had taken me six years. A Humble Pie album, there's a song off, off Rock On. Um, there's numbers off uh, four other solo records. So I cherry-picked from my past for, and, uh, you know, a Stones number. And... Um, so I, I knew that I'm not as prolific a writer as I would like to be. Uh, it, I take my time to come up with the real good ones. And uh, so now everyone's talking <laughs> within a few months of Comes Alive coming out and being at number one and being the number one re selling record of all time. And they're starting to talk to me about doing another one straight away. And I, I said to everybody, it took me six years to write this material. Go away, you know. And then the pressure... Uh, so when I was number one and heard about it for the first time, the album, I was elated. I was feeling on top of the world. When I got the call, it was the number one selling record of all time. I got scared mm -hmm. because I knew that it would take me longer than they were going to give me to come out with the next album. 
And that was, that was the beginning of, of my downfall, basically. You view it as a downfall? Um, after, after I'm in you and Sergeant Pepper, yep, I'd call that a downfall. Well, yeah. I mean, I guess some of it is that it's this whole thing about expectation, you know, is is because, you know, when at least I, I grew up in the, the 80s. So your name was still was always still part mm-hmm. of the conversation that, you know, people still listen to these albums. So it never felt like a downfall. What how what, how would you define a downfall? Um, well, but I can't even remember whether um, uh, I can't even remember whether Sergeant Pepper was first or I'm in you was first. But those two kind of uh, came out, and one was humiliating, which was the film, right? Because it was so awful, um, and and I'm in you was a disappointment because it wasn't as good as I knew I could do if I had more time. And I think that's the biggest mistake I made by not saying to everybody at that particular time, not ready, go away, give me some time. And I didn't do that. And uh, so I take responsibility for my mistakes of letting them talk me into doing something that I wasn't ready to do. One thing that... I, I, I'm curious about is, you know, that I'm in you comes out in 1977 is a, mm-hmm. is a big hit. And after that, you know, in the eighties and nineties, it feels like your songs are being covered all over the place. <laughs> I mean, one of the cool anecdotes is that one of the first songs you two ever performed as a group, you know, is show me the way in a, in a, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard that, but in like a yeah. high school, in a high school talent show, you know, which is, one thing when it's you two in their talent show, and then it's another thing when you, you know, you hear one of the biggest covers. I feel like of of my lifetime, at least with "Baby I Love Your Way," um, with Big Mountain. Mm-hmm. Did that? I imagine when you're feeling like you're on a downfall, that when you hear these bands covering your music. It, it's got to feel good to be part of the zeitgeist, even, you know, past the, yes. that, right? I, I had, when touring, due to Frampton Comes Alive, when touring um, on that record, during that record's period of success, um, we went to Ireland and um, we were in the hotel. Um, I'm not sure what city we were in. And the waitress came up and she knew who we were and she said... Uh, I went to school with you too. And I said, oh, wow, really? She said, yeah. She said, and they would play Show Me The Way um, at school. You know, I said, no way. She said, absolutely. So um, (laughs) I um, flash forward to when I'm living in um, uh, possibly the early 2000s. I'm I'm living in... um, Uh, in Cincinnati and Bono comes to town and I'm part of, I get invited because he's come to see these houses that they have built from his uh, one organization uh, for AIDS patients. 
and um, and homeless and all sorts of stuff. But but I mean, it was just wonderful. And he came there to congratulate everybody. And so I got introduced to him there. And then he quickly took me aside and we sort of hid from everybody else. And we, he was just like wanting to talk, you know. And, and I said, well, I've got to ask you a question, man. And he said, I've heard that you you guys used to do Show Me The Way. And he said, we did, we did. And I said, wow, that's incredible. I said, I'm so honoured. He said, I always thought of it as a prayer. And I thought that was, that sort of sums up what, how differently people think of songs and what the lyrics really mean. Mine was a love song to a a lady, uh, Show Me The Way, and the way he read it was a prayer, wow. you know, which, which was so cool that I love that, that people take different meanings um, and that I covered that for him. <laughs> but anyway, uh, then I very recently saw that I was, um, he wrote me a note uh, because Show Me The Way was one of the, his, his 50 favorite songs or 60, whatever it was. And um, so I thanked him on the internet. Um, but uh, yeah, so I, I, I've forgotten the next part of the question, but, but uh, that's my, my Bono story. There is a, a quote that, that has been attributed to you that says, very early on, I learned that you can have a great band, you can have a great producer, great studio, everything can be right, but if you don't have great songs, you've got nothing. Can you elaborate for our listeners, you know, the value of a song to you, especially being a guitarist? Yes. Well, the way I, the way I know that a song is good is if I, my, uh, my MO for writing now is to not turn anything electronic on unless it's my guitar amplifier. Um, but no, no door, no drum machine, no nothing. Just pick up an acoustic, an electric, or sit down at the piano. And if if by if you can play, say you come up with three, but you really like this second one you did, and you want to get a reaction from a someone you really respect, and you can play it live on the keyboard or on the acoustic or on electric, and they like it. Then and you know it's a good song. It stands alone, bare like that. But and then uh, you can orchestrate it or, or, or put the band in or you know rehearse however you want to record that song. Um, it, it you know Big Mountain doing a reggae version of Baby I Love You Way. That wasn't the way it was written, you know. But what a terrific idea. You know, what a great record that is, you know. So, um, yeah, it's it's all down to um, knowing that if I sit down and play you an acoustic and voice a brand new song, I know it's good and it'll stand up just with a voice and a, one instrument. You won a Grammy in the, in, in the aughts, the 2000s or doing music that isn't rock and roll. I mean, it's similar, but different. Uh Mm -hmm. Um, To get that kind of appreciation later, how does that um, 
how does that feel emotionally when we've talked about how you felt that after the mid 70s that you had a downfall? Mm-hmm. How does it feel to be winning Grammys in the 2000s? I like the S you put on that, the Grammys. I'm waiting for that next one. Fair, fair <laughs> no, no, no. Um, young yet. This yeah, <laughs> thank you. When we do um, the Red Album, there you go. <laughs> well, uh, I had this idea all along uh, that one day I would do an instrumental album, just like The Shadows, and um, that's who started me off. And uh, But I had a lot of different musical inspirations to cover, from rock to jazz to gypsy jazz, um, R&B, uh, kind of Spanish, uh, South American feel, everything. I, I covered a lot of different ground on, on finger, fingerprints. And um, uh, I think uh, it wasn't obviously done for financial gain. <laughs> um, nothing I've ever done has been for financial gain. Uh, it's always been because I've wanted to do it and enjoyed doing it most of the time. And um, then I get nominated for the Grammy and I couldn't believe it. Um, and then I said, well, we'll go, but I'm not going to get it, you know. And I was nominated for the song um, Black Hole Sun, the version uh, Soundgarden, wonderful song of Chris's and... Uh, I didn't get that, but the very first award they read out um, for album, instrumental album of the year, was me. And I I froze. I almost couldn't get out of my chair because I was so overcome with um, a feeling of accomplishment that I've broken the mold of people thinking of me in old terms, you know, now... I started off the guitar player, and now I'm ending up the guitar player, which is where I've always wanted to be. In this final segment, because I know we're running out of time, um, this is our five for five. I'll, I'll just name five things, and and uh, and you can just sort of tell me what comes off the top of your head. Okay. Um, this this will be a way for us to tell some of your story along the way. But let's start okay. with David Bowie. S- sorry, so, say that one more time. David Bowie. Like, just tell me what comes off the top of your head about these people, or a little anecdote is nice. Okay. Um, Dave Jones, David Bowie, uh, my dearest friend for many, many, many years, my, his entire life, from when he was uh, 15, 14 or 15, I met him at school. And um, he was kind of like an older brother. He was always there to call. We did not always see each other. Um, uh, for long periods, but when we did, it was like we'd just seen each other yesterday. And he always looked after me. In fact, he was... um, I needed a a sax player for one of the tracks, the opening tracks on Fingerprints. And I knew Dave Dave plays sax. And uh, so uh, that's how I first saw him, playing sax on the school steps, you know, with the Conrads. And... uh, so I said, he's got to know the cutting-edge sax player. So I called him and he said, yeah, Courtney Pine, you've got to get Courtney Pine from England. He'll be the one you'll need. So I did. And it was phenomenal. You know, what a great player. And um, so Dave was always helping me along the way. Amazing. Bob Mayo. 
Oh, Bob Mayo, miss him so much. Um, uh, my musical brother, through, uh, through a torrential time, <laughs> uh, we, we had so much um, fun playing music together and we never spoke about it. I know that seems weird. It's just something that simpatico musically uh, and he would even change what he was playing behind my solos to be uh, an even more supporting, give me an even more supporting chord or taking it out of the box a little bit. And he would take me somewhere else. So it was, it was, it was a partnership on stage musically. And um, he was truly one of the nicest, caring people I've ever known. Let's talk about your memoir. So your memoir will be number three. Um, always thought I might do one. Um, then every time someone said, well, what do you think? No, I don't think now's right. No, no. And then, unfortunately, I, I got diagnosed with um, a muscle disease, um, IBM, inclusion body, body myositis. And it, it uh, slowly... Um, you lose uh, the use of muscles in your legs and your arms. So um, mine is incredibly slow moving, so I'm very lucky. But um, we decided that because it was in a progressive stage and I'd fallen on stage a couple of times, that um, now was the time to not do another tour, but to do the farewell tour. And I could make it as long as I could play, <laughs> um, but, but so I could get around the world and say goodbye to or everybody, you know. Um, but we only got as far as, I mean, remarkably, we got it finished in October of 2019. Amazing. And that was, we were planning on going to Europe in, in May. Um, and then other countries after that. So we had to stop, obviously. Um, but at the same time, um, I thought, well, it's probably, if I'm going to do a book, this probably is the right time, you know. And um, I had no idea how difficult it is and how painful it can be um, or how enjoyable it can be. It depends what you're recounting. Um, and I took, um, took myself... Um, through the journey with, with the help of Alan Light, wonderful writer, my, co, my cohort, my co-host the, in the book. And um, he really helped me and guided me through how to do this. And um, I was dreading it coming out because it's very personal. Um, otherwise, why do it? Right. Um, and this is not just a bunch of songs coming out with a few hidden meanings. This is it in black and white, you know. And so I was really worried about it coming out, but um, I'm starting to calm down now because I'm getting people are seem, seemingly liking it and I'm so thrilled. Yeah, the feedback is amazing. Um, it really is. I, I, uh, I'm bewildered, but, but very thankful and, and honored that people like it. It's interesting thinking of the word feedback considering your guitar playing history and that that's what you aim for you know, is to control your feedback when you play guitar <laughs> and then also when you write a memoir. 
Um, yeah, I can't control my feedback when I write, but I can in music. Yeah, I get you. <laughs> All right, I'm going to lump the last two with these three. Julian, Jade, and Mia, your kids. Oh. Um, well, and Tiff, my stepdaughter, Tiffany. And uh, so... They mean the world to me. Um, it's been uh, it's been a, a journey because a touring musician doesn't have a lot of time to spend with family, which is which is the downside of it. Um, but I am very very lucky that I have a terrific relationship with all my children, and I'm actually going up uh, to New York mid November. If all if if I'm allowed to, and um, see my granddaughter for the very first time. She was born in April, L, uh, like the magazine, and um, and I have seen her two to three times a day on Zoom and FaceTime. Uh, I I I wish I could reach through the screen and just pull her through or pull me through, um, but I'm actually going to go up there and. Um, and spend five days with them. I love that. Well, thank you so much for doing this. Um, I, I could go and ask a million questions when it comes to how you <laughs> recorded your albums and, and we can always talk about songwriting and the music industry. I mean, the music industry is so different from the 60s and 70s, but what you guys were doing was really defining an industry that were... You know, it's a, it was a young industry. You mentioned Elvis, and that's really the beginning of what we know of. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, the modern music industry, and and you've been a staple in so much of it. So I really appreciate you coming on and and being, you know, as honest and and you know being a participant in this conversation with the thousands of people we have that listen to this every week. So, well, thank you, and and I have the next album when it comes out, hopefully late spring um maybe i can come back and we can go into detail on that <laughs> i you know it, it's an open invitation my friend thank you so much for doing this and uh we'll see you in the spring when you're out yes all righty right. thank you so much thank you bye 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 Thanks for listening to this episode of And The Writer Is. If you want to hear music from this songwriter I just interviewed, be sure to check out our Spotify playlist or visit our website at andthewriteris.com. If you like what we're doing, please subscribe to us. You can also like us on Facebook and Twitter. And The Writer Is is produced by Joe London, edited by Miles Bergsma, and published by Big Deal Music. A special thanks to David Silberstein from Mega House Music and Michael White. Until next time, this is Ross Gold.
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Mm. 